0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, backlash over a recently announced state holiday encouraging Coloradans to go a day without eating meat has revived a contentious political debate surrounding Colorado's changing meat and meat alternative industries. But producers don't necessarily see the divide that politicians do.
1: I don't think it should be this all or nothing, us first STEM sort of mentality.
2: That story and more, just ahead. You're listening
0: to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman.
2: And I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado is entering the largest phase of its COVID-19 vaccine rollout to date. More frontline workers and every person over the age of 50 will become eligible to receive a dose.
0: It comes as the state's supply of vaccines is set to increase, as is the number of ways to get an appointment. KUNC's Matt Bloom has been following the vaccine rollout since it began and is with us now for the latest. Hey, Matt. Hey, Henry. It's been a while since we've had you on for a vaccine update, Matt. Can you give us an overall snapshot of how many people have been vaccinated in Colorado and sort of how it's been going? We have just over
3: 1.2 million people that have gotten at least one dose of vaccine, which is kind of remarkable to, to say and think about because it feels like we were just sitting here three months ago, right after the state's very first dose was administered in Fort Collins in December. But it's certainly been a whirlwind. We we started with just vaccinating frontline healthcare workers, then first responders, senior citizens and teachers and grocery store workers. We're now getting to a point where most of the people in those groups have gotten vaccinated. And The state's supply is really about to start opening up to the broader population.
0: Well, and that takes us to this new phase of eligibility. What is the newest phase? Who's on it? The next phase uh, for people who are eligible to make an
3: appointment includes every resident 50 years and older. There's also a very long list of frontline workers and I could list them all if you want or I could just give you some of the highlights. Give us the highlights. Um, so we have uh, higher education staff and faculty, um, food and restaurant workers, Faith leaders are also on the list. There's also uh, people who are 16 and older who have a high-risk health condition as defined by the state. As I said, the list goes on. But think of the people that you might interact with on a day-to-day basis when you're out and about. This phase is really about targeting those folks in the
0: community. Let's talk about vaccine supply. In a press conference earlier this week, Governor Jared Polis said he expects the state's weekly shipments of vaccines from the federal government to increase by a lot in the coming weeks. Let's listen to what he said first.
1: Next week, Colorado will get about 3,000 additional doses of Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, We will also get about the same number of Johnson & Johnson next week as we did this week, about 7,000 doses they expect that will increase the week after next. Uh, we expect that the vaccination supplies hitting the state will reach uh, the 400,000 per week level uh, by the end of April.
0: 400,000 doses per week. Matt, that seems like a lot. What more can you tell us about it?
3: These projections are all based on what the Biden administration has been telling states to expect from them and to prepare for on the ground. And. The biggest change that we're seeing in Colorado in response to this is how a lot of these uh, extra vaccines are going to be administered. The state is opening up six new mass vaccination sites in Colorado Springs, Grand Junction and Loveland, just to name a few. Uh, I spoke with Tom Gonzalez, Larimer County's public health director, about this. He says a mass vaccination site at the ranch should be opening up next week.
4: It's mind boggling and exciting because the quicker we get herd immunity and that's getting about 70 to 75 percent of our population vaccinated in northern Colorado and Colorado in the U.S., the more uh, quicker we are going to get back to some normal life.
3: And all those sites, when they're up and running, can each deliver about 6,000 shots per day.
0: I wanted to ask about something we've talked about on the show a lot, and that's equity. We know that white residents are receiving a disproportionate amount of vaccines. Black residents, Hispanic residents, Asian American residents, all are underrepresented. Is the state aware of these disparities, and are they doing anything to address them? So yes, uh,
3: the biggest effort happening right now are these so-called equity clinics. These are where the state reserves a small portion of its weekly shipment for pop-up clinics and minority communities across the state. I actually attended one recently at Salud Family Health in Fort Collins and spoke with one of the organizers there, Johanna Ujoa. She is one of the founders of the BIPOC Alliance of Northern Colorado, and she says they're focusing on getting uh, seniors and community leaders in the Latinx community vaccinated
5: they're trusted by other community members. So if they see that the community leaders are coming here, getting the vaccine, that they feel healthy afterwards, that it is an easy process to go through. It will inspire others to come and get the vaccine.
3: So far, these clinics have moved the needle a little bit when you look at the data, but there's still a lot of work to do in this area. There's a big equity clinic happening this weekend at Sunrise Family Health, just south of Greeley. Um, The organizers there hope to get 1,000 Latinx residents vaccinated during that. So there's certainly a lot of energy going into this and definitely something to watch in the coming months.
0: Looking forward, Matt, what can you tell us about the eligibility timeline for the rest of Colorado as we get into the spring and summer? And do you have a satisfying answer to the question, when can we expect things to get back to normal?
3: So on the eligibility front, the message coming from Governor Polis right now is that everyone 16 years and older should be able to make an appointment by mid-April. So that's about a month from now. It's important to note that the timeline has changed a lot over the vaccine rollout, so I would uh, expect and prepare for that to potentially change. Competition is also still really stiff, so it may take a while for you to actually get a slot if you want one. There's still a lot of uncertainties around when children will get access. That's another major point. And on the back to normal front, um, there are some encouraging signs that the vaccine is already having an impact. The latest data show uh, COVID-19 case rates in the 70 and up age group, which was one of the first to get vaccinated, remember, are now falling below rates in the population as a whole. And Governor Polis, along with local health officials, are saying that if that progress holds steady, we could start to see some of the major COVID-19 restrictions in Colorado start to go away
0: this summer. Okay, we'll keep an eye on it. KUNC's Matt Bloom, thanks. You're welcome. And if you're looking for more information on how to find a COVID-19 vaccine appointment, we have a free guide with locations in Greeley, Fort Collins, and Loveland available at our website. It's KUNC.org.
2: A showdown is looming among the states that rely on the Colorado River for drinking and irrigation water. Negotiations are set to start on the river's future among worsening drought conditions. And right now, Western water leaders are attempting to work out their internal issues before the main talks begin. Lexi Peary from KUER, Ariana Brocious from Arizona Public Media, and KUNC's Luke Runyon have more.
6: I'm Lexi Peary at the Santalo Reservoir in southwest Utah. This lake is the endpoint for the proposed Lake Powell Pipeline, which would pump water from the Colorado River to this growing corner of the state. It's an important bargaining chip in the state's negotiation strategy. It's also led others in the watershed to raise serious concerns. Don Ibsen is a Republican state senator from the area.
5: And they want to bring this to a resolution and push us out, and we can't let that happen. They got whole staffs that their whole purpose is to stop Utah from having it, and particularly stop the Lake Powell pipeline.
6: To fight back, Utah lawmakers are creating a new Colorado River Authority. It will be focused on pushing for more of Utah's share of the river. Gene Shawcroft will be part of the authority. He's also Utah's representative for interstate negotiations.
5: Each state, in my mind, should have the ability to use its water when it chooses to do so.
6: He says Utah hasn't used its full allocation of Colorado River water that was allocated to them nearly a century ago. But critics of that approach say projects like the Lake Powell Pipeline threaten the whole system and say Utah is ignoring the science on climate change. But while Utah wants to grow into its allocation, it's a very different conversation in other parts of the watershed, like Arizona.
7: I'm Arianna Brocious in Tucson. Some of the water from the Colorado River enters the CAP, or Central Arizona Project Canal, becoming a ribbon of blue that winds through miles of arid desert to reach the cities of Phoenix and Tucson. Arizona is already taking cuts to its CAP supply, and if current projections hold, they'll increase nearly threefold next year, says Ted Cook, the project's general manager.
5: So 512,000 acre-feet coming out of the CAP supply is... is um about a third, 30% to a third. That's a lot.
7: Arizona could also lose a lot more water if the levels in Lake Mead keep dropping. The state's junior water rights mean its supply is more vulnerable. Cook says Arizona is getting good practice at reining in its uses as supplies shrink.
5: When you look at the drought contingency plan, at every tier level, Arizona is taking the most, and sometimes a lot more.
7: Still, Arizona can't shoulder the whole burden, he says. Other lower basin states also need to cut back. Arizona has reassembled the committee charged with negotiating the 2019 drought contingency plan to handle the upcoming negotiations. That includes a diverse group of delegates. But some still worry groups that have been excluded in the past, like tribes and environmentalists, won't get fair representation this time.
4: (sighs) I'm Luke Runyon. I'm here at the Continental Divide in northern Colorado, close to the headwaters of the Colorado River. It's starting to snow here. 70% of the river's flow comes from Colorado, and Colorado Water Conservation Board Director Becky Mitchell says that fact alone leads water leaders in her state to feel protective of the river.
6: First and foremost, I think it's important as Colorado's commissioner that We're looking at protecting our legal entitlement on the Colorado River and protecting our state's waters for those who depend on it.
4: Leading up to the negotiations, upper basin leaders, like Mitchell, have been under pressure to consider implementing what's referred to as a use cap. Water demands on the river in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico have been flat since the late 1980s. And putting a hard limit on future uses would give planners more certainty. But Mitchell says that concept is a non-starter.
6: I'm not ready to go there just yet.
4: This is a central tension on the river. Basin states recognize the need to be thinking of and managing the watershed as a whole, but still jealously guard their own river allocations. Recent studies have shown there will be a breaking point, when states are forced to cut back because supplies keep shrinking. But figuring out who bears the greatest burden is what's up for negotiation.
2: That was KUNC's Luke Runyon, Arizona Public Media's Ariana Brocious, and KUER's Lexi Peary. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River Basin, supported by the Walton Family Foundation. You can find more of our coverage of the Colorado River and the upcoming negotiations at KUNC.org.
0: You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC.
2: Late last month, Governor Jared Polis declared March 20th, this Saturday, Meat Out Day, a day encouraging Coloradans to go a day without eating meat. Not long after the proclamation, backlash poured in from across the state, even across the country. Weld County, along with roughly two dozen other counties and the state of Nebraska, eventually responded with a counter-holiday designating March 20th as Meat In Day.
0: And though we've heard a lot in the last few weeks from diametrically opposed politicians, we wanted to see where actual meat and meat alternative producers in Colorado stand on the matter. Do they feel as opposed as these two holiday declarations would suggest? In a few minutes, we'll hear from a boulder-based company making meat alternatives from the muscular root system of mushrooms called mycelium.
2: But first, we start with a local rancher. Aaron Rice is owner and operator of Jodar Farms, a sustainable pasture-raised meat operation in Wellington. He's here with us to talk about the agriculture industry in Colorado and to share his thoughts on the meat-free holiday. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: Start by telling us a little bit about your farm. How big is it? What do you raise? Where does your operation fit in, in the larger meat production landscape in the state?
5: So we have run a small family farm just uh, just north of Fort Collins in Wellington. Um, we have about 70 acres that we're pasturing chickens, pigs, a um, little bit of lambs. We're, we're pretty small.
2: So very different from the large feedlots that Sometimes we drive past heading east, especially.
5: No, not at all. Yeah, ours are much smaller. We're going to be doing a fraction of the, the number of animals.
2: I understand you practice something called rotational livestock management, uh, sometimes also associated with regenerative agriculture. Explain what that's about.
5: Yeah, so our practices are going to be based on rotating animals through the pastures and and Letting the pastures rest between the animals being out foraging and, and taking advantage of of being outside. Our our mindset is to to really utilize the the natural habitat and try to create a system that really matches the way that the the animals, especially chickens and pigs, uh, are meant to be to be raised.
2: I want to ask about your reaction to Governor Polis's declaration of a meat-free holiday and. Then, what was your reaction to the backlash that we've seen against it?
5: When I first heard about it, I kind of just, you know, went right off my back. I didn't think much about it. It was pretty indifferent. It doesn't bother me as much as I think it bothers others. It feels like it's just pandering to a certain part of his demographic that he's looking to gain some some political points with. I think it was a little short sighted. Um, He could have used this as an opportunity to. Instead of demonize the whole industry and the whole ranching industry, maybe he could have uh, said, hey, this is a great place for us to be supporting sustainable and regenerative agriculture.
2: Clearly, some see a meat-free holiday and a push for more plant-based diets as a threat to the meat industry. Do you agree with that?
5: Um I mean, I can see where, where people would, would, would find that and could make that connection. You do have to be on your, your guard a little bit as our industry has made it very difficult for small scale ag. To me, I didn't see it as a threat so much as, you know, this is just another day that they decided to, to push some agenda, um, you know, but, I think, unfortunately for them, it's, uh, it's maybe created more attention for meat instead of vegetable-based and, and plant-based diets.
2: One thing that puts sustainably raised meat out of reach for many Coloradans is the cost. It is, of course, a lot more expensive than conventionally raised meat. Why is that? And what are the barriers to reducing that cost so that this higher quality product would be more accessible?
5: When it comes to the price of sustainable um, and regenerative ag products, when it comes to meat in particular, when you when you see those prices, I think there's a lot of sticker shock at first, but people don't quite understand that. Our, our products aren't the same as, you know, you can't compare them side by side with, with a lot of the meat and eggs that you find in the grocery stores. When, when they're raised certain ways, you have, you have nutrient density differences, you have quality differences, and you have flavor differences. And part of, part of the problem right now is industrial agriculture is subsidized, you know, greatly through, through the federal government. And so it doesn't reflect the true price points that it takes to raise these animals and produce the products. And so once people decide that it's important that they're eating quality meat, that's when we start to see people understanding that you you really do get what you pay for.
2: Advocates for a more plant-based diet tout the health and environmental benefits, as well as the horror of industrial agriculture's treatment of animals, to make a case for the plant-based lifestyle. As a sustainable meat producer, how do you respond to those arguments?
5: Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think people should be eating vegetables and I think they should be out eating, you know, a balanced diet. Um, we're, We're advocates of maybe don't eat as much meat and maybe eat better meat. It's the quality over quantity theory. Um, if you're going to be eating meat, you should be eating the good stuff. Now, when it comes to plant-based diets, I think to each their own, um, one of the things that, that I hear a lot is you know, how good the, the Impossible Burger or some of these lab-grown meats are. But I think people forget those don't just come out of thin air. Those have to come from soybeans, peas, different protein sources that are vegetable-based that are being grown on mass scales, you know, are using monoculture, um, agriculture, and monocropping across the country. How many pesticides, insecticides, herbicides are you know applied to these fields uh, due to this new demand? Is that better for the environment? Is that better for our immune systems and things like that? I, I I'd say no, it, it really isn't. What really people ought to be doing is supporting the, the ranchers and farmers that are rotating their their animals through grass, and uh, they're capturing carbon through better grass growth and and healthier fields and topsoil retention. Um, those are the ways that I think that we could have a better environmental stewardship, and then having you know healthier people.
2: Aaron Rice is owner and operator of Jodar Farms in Wellington. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: And now we're going to get another take on the meat and meat alternative industries in Colorado. Tyler Huggins is co-founder and CEO of Meaty Foods. It's a boulder-based company making meat alternatives from fungi, more specifically from the muscular root system called mycelium. Tyler, welcome to Colorado Edition.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to talk about the alternative meat market at large, but first I need to wrap my head around your mycelium-based food. For the listeners at home, we're not quite talking about, you know, toadstools or like a supermarket portobello. It's based out of this stuff called mycelium. Explain what that is.
1: Yeah. So you can think of mycelium as like the muscular root structure of mushrooms. So we all know the mushroom cap. That's the above ground structure. But down below in the soil is this thread-like structure that you know helps provide nutrients um, and is really the main body of, of the fungi and actually you know mushrooms themselves are made of mycelium that goes above ground so we've been consuming mycelium um, ever since we've been eating mushrooms uh, It is just our particular type doesn't produce fruiting bodies the mushroom cap and it is packed full of protein so it has the same amino acid profile as as beef plus a ton of fiber and other vitamins and minerals that really make it even in a more nutritional um, source of, of protein than, than your traditional, um, you know, mushrooms you find at the grocery store.
0: And so you said your mycelium process doesn't result in any fruiting bodies. Kind of explain in as much detail as you can, knowing that you've got a proprietary process, how the sort of sausage is made, so to speak.
1: We grow our mycelium um, in, in our, what we call our urban ranches. And essentially it looks like a, a brewery. Um, using a lot of the same equipment, so we basically provide it this very clean, uh, nutrient-rich environment uh, that it, it basically grows in. And super fast, so this process takes li- literally overnight, so 12 to 18 hours from you know the original start of the process to the very end, where you know as we know cows take up to up to two years before harvesting. So incredibly fast growth and production. Then we essentially harvest it. And use, you know, very simple just forming processes in order to to produce the finished good that looks like a a steak and a chicken breast. So really, these urban ranches look like a combination of a brewery and a like a cheese factory together.
0: Products like yours really have been like a flashpoint in the state lately and maybe over the last five, 10 years. And a few years ago, as you probably know, Governor Jared Polis ate a made from plants burger at at his desk at the Capitol. What do you think about that public display of approval? And, and did that positively affect the meat alternative market here in Colorado?
1: I think it's very helpful. I don't think it should be this all or nothing us for STEM sort of mentality. So my parents own a, a bison ranch out in central Nebraska. I grew up in, in a rural agricultural communities. Many of my friends and families and colleagues are in you know the the cattle industry we don't see them as, as the enemy. We, I, I view this as helping, you know, what we're doing is helping to create a more robust American drive protein infrastructure. Global population is going up extremely rapidly and demand for protein is going up rapidly. This growth of, you know, alternative meats isn't going to take away from that industry at all. But it provides, again, additional diversity in people's diets and diversity to our agricultural system. So I feel like we're, you know, we're part of this, just like a chicken versus beef versus pork producers. You know, we're just part of that mix.
0: On a long enough timeline, don't consumers ultimately decide who the winners and losers are here? For sure.
1: 100%. In the end, it's all going to come down to, is this an enjoyable user experience? Is it delicious? you know, is it filling? Does it satisfy this demand? And is it, is it affordable and accessible? That's really who's going to win this this thing in the long run, is, is being able to, to satisfy all those things for consumers.
0: Have you kind of observed attitudes changing around this in your life, in your circles, whether it's business or personal? Do you think things are changing?
1: I do. Yeah. I, again, my parents, um, I go out and visit their ranch um, on a regular basis, and I bring the product out there and I talk to them about it. And I think it's very clear that, you know, people want to have a healthier diet. I think they understand that eating, you know, uh, red meat or every night, um, probably isn't the healthiest thing for them, but it's just part of their, their way of life. And there aren't a lot of other options. So providing another option that's enjoyable and delicious and accessible, affordable, all those great things. They're like, yeah, this sounds great. Why wouldn't I want this? so i think it's just the tone of voice i think that's something that media we're trying to do differently is saying like hey we're not here to replace animals from the supply chain we're not trying to tell you how to eat but here's an option and if it works for you then you know that's awesome that's what i was hoping for you know we had the opportunity to build this company anywhere in the us and we chose colorado because we one we love the location the work-life balance here but we also love the people ultimately uh, you know what we're doing. We're hoping to benefit people, and we hope to benefit the the Colorado community. So, like this is a Colorado-born company, and we want to embrace that. So we're always looking to to help and engage with you know other folks in the Colorado community.
0: Tyler Huggins is the co-founder and CEO of Meaty Foods. Tyler, thanks for talking with us.
1: Thank you.
2: That's our show for today. On Monday, we'll hear why reported incidents of domestic violence across the country have increased during the pandemic. I'm Erin O'Toole.
0: And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer.
2: Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.